Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast and radio show explore the world's cultural landscape. We engage at the intersection of digital media and social practice to spark conversations about contemporary art, film, and architecture. Today we bring you part one of our series on art with a sense of place. We consider creative projects that respond to a physical space and those that react to or embrace a historic moment, a cultural environment, a socio-political tension, or a psychological space. Emerging in the 1960s, Site-specific art sought to transcend what was perceived as the over-curated, almost clinical context of the art museum. Artists rebelled by creating their own exhibition sites. Agnes Dennis, remember, brought a wheat field to New York City to a landfill. Or flaunting the rules of museum installation with live interventions. Joseph Boys lived in a Soho gallery with a live coyote. This episode brings together a broad range of culture production. We create a conversation that exposes new ways of seeing place, space, and sight in contemporary art. Performance artist Joan Jonas has always summoned a highly symbolic sense of place. Her work animates layered and interconnected metaphysical environments expressing a lifelong interest in performative rituals and storytelling. The University of Texas invited her to present The Shape, The Scent, The Feel of Things, a performance that was first commissioned by Dia Beacon in 2004, Mm -hmm. I think. The piece evokes a snake dance sort of ritual, and I know ritual is very important in your work. What about that particular dance resonated with you? It's a snake dance, the Hopi snake dance, which I saw in the 60s in Arizona. And it was an amazing experience. I never wanted to do anything with it, frankly, because I didn't want to intrude upon the Native American culture because of the way we've treated them in this country. And also, it's sacred for them, and I don't quote anything of, from that experience. There's no visual images that, that evoke the Hopi. So for years, I just, it was a memory, and it was inspiring because I've always been interested in ritual as a kind of inspiration for my work. The ritual of other cultures and the ritual in our own culture, you know, and, and, and the history of art in, in the Western world includes ritual. Art begins with rituals. So I came across this book by Abby Warburg, German art historian, had visited the Southwest in the last years of the 19th century, went to visit the Pueblo Indians, and saw many ceremonies, but not the the snake dance, but he's written about it. I found an essay that he had written about his experience when he was a patient at a sanitarium in Switzerland, and he had written this piece in order to demonstrate that he'd recovered from his nervous breakdown. And I was very inspired and moved by this piece that he wrote. So I decided to revisit this experience through his writing. In your practice, 
you consistently connect the physical with the conceptual and you've taken full advantage of all the new media props or technology that was available and yet at the same time you've maintained this really strong affinity for drawing. I was a sculptor before I stepped into performance in the late 60s and the one uh, discipline that I really took with me besides continuing to think of it as sculpture to making three-dimensional moving events was the practice of drawing and I'm very interested and I love to draw and so I try to incorporate drawing in all my, almost all my performances and video pieces and I also make drawings, I mean that are independent of that. So each time I do a new work I think of another way to include drawing or painting. So in this piece I make a painting of a, a snake that has nothing to do with a snake dance but it, it's my way of referencing. The content of each work inspires certain images that I can draw and be part of the visual all-over picture of the piece. I was looking at the installation today and realizing how much you stage your works and how working on a stage would be interesting for you, but at the same time, your early works, you were on the street, you were in your well, studio. Yes, I was all over. I'm interested in doing my work in different spaces. Mm -hmm. And in the early days, I never worked in a theater, for instance, where it was always in a gymnasium or outside or in a strange space, a loft space because that was what was available and what was interesting at that time. Mm -hmm. This piece was originally commissioned by Dia Beacon. It was really a site-specific piece for that space at that time. This enormously huge basement space with columns, beautiful 19th century factory space. And we used the, these long corridors of columns. And for me, it represented the sanitarium, actually, that Warburg was in. You know, I spend a lot of time on my work, and the pieces have a real... Um, well, they exist, and so I want to do them again. This is the uh, fourth time we've done it, mm -hmm. and there just aren't those kind of spaces. The only time it was comparable slightly was in Brazil in the Niemeyer building, but Stuttgart, we did it on a stage. It has to be reconfigured. Has the work evolved in a sense because of well, that? Well, no, I think it didn't evolve. It changed just a little changed. bit. Yeah, I mean, the work itself, it's all the same movements, the same videos, the same props, but because of the change of space, the performance itself has to, in a way, become more intense. The space itself at Dia Beacon was really a large part of the piece, and it was beautiful. So I've noticed in this, this latest version, and also in Stuttgart two years ago, our performances take on another intensity in these kind of spaces. You work with a jazz innovator, Jason Moran, and he is with you every time you perform this piece. And I'm really interested in that, that there is some improvisational aspect to how you work together. Jason is an improviser. He, he worked with me at the beginning when we were working out this piece. It was built on improvisation because that's the way one begins. You play with ideas and you develop them. So we worked together for six weeks, actually. And I brought already edited backdrops and the script, and, but I didn't have the movements. So we worked on the movements. We went scene by scene. And Jason would play something, and if I loved it, or if I liked it, or if I found it interesting at all, we'd work with that. If not, then we'd go on to something else. He's very inventive. Jason developed the musical score in that way. We also work together. I work with sound, and he's wonderful because he's very open about improvising in that sense. So it's always more or less the same, and his score has always the same motifs for each part. But he embellishes and brings in new sounds, and experiments with the piano, 
and sometimes it sounds really electronic what he's doing. So he's all the time, especially in this version in, in uh, Austin, he's really always bringing something else to it. But I'm always trying to do the same thing. <laughs> you know, I move, we all move in relation to, to hearing his music. We're not dancing to his music, but we're moving in relation. It's inspiring for us. Improvisational jazz pianist and composer Jason Moran is an ideal partner for Jonas and other artists. He deftly facilitates the communal experience of space and place to shape sonic landscapes. I'm on the phone with Jason Moran. I'm really excited that I get a chance to speak with you and I am particularly fascinated with the aspect of improvisation in your work. When did improvising become your pattern? Well, within the jazz structure, the most important aspect of it is improvisation. So, I mean, I was playing piano from age 6 to age 13, and I was playing Suzuki piano, which basically has no improvisation in it. At least I didn't feel any. So what I fell in love with was when I heard Thelonious Monk playing piano, and and understanding that jazz was full of improvisation or that the blues was full of improvisation. So from that point on in my life, it was integral that I learned the, you know, how to improvise, the language of improvisation. Because within jazz, there are many different languages to speak. And once you start studying the history of what has come before, just as a painter would study different painters from different centuries, then you understand the techniques. So right now, it just is, you know, it's kind of how I eat and live and breathe is through improvisation. When you're talking about your collaborations with Joan, for example, mm -hmm. you've described the importance of the relationship between the sonic and visual landscape. And right. I'm wondering right. how those relational themes evolved in projects with other artists that you've worked with. With Joan, it was important to just kind of break the break the ice and not come in with any set plan of what the music would sound like, or, you know, just to have no notion um, and just to really watch and then see how the sound would come together in the space as I looked at her work. Whether I'm looking at quilts from Alabama or looking at a painting by John Biggers or looking at a video by Carol Walker, there's different ways of addressing how to, you know, the sonic landscape. You know, one might be related to movement. Watching Joan move in a space it's about movement. It's about gesture. Kara Walker, her videos are more about, you know, kind of this relationship to America's social history and the pains that man goes through to hurt other men and women. So you kind of deal with that aspect and what kind, what sounds are appropriate or can help underscore these stories. Some that are abstract and some that are very, you know, uh, concrete and real. So that's, you know, when I play with those notions, then you can deal with whether I play a tonally or I play tonally or I play a song or play an improvisation or just play a groove or just play a repeated figure. Learning that language then helps kind of set the new standard for what the new piece would be with these various collaborators. As I was watching you and Joan perform in Austin, I was struck with the spatial dynamic. Mm -hmm. You were on stage and you were seated with your back to the audience, right. but at... Many times, it seemed to me, Joan and the other performers were out of 
your view or at the very edge of your peripheral vision. And I wondered how you established this sonic rapport with the unseen in that situation. Mm. Well, sometimes the unseen is the unseen. Um, <laughs> and you hope to have some kind of dialogue, whether you see them or not. You know, a lot of what I'm focusing on in the piece is, is a lot of the video. Because the music is never really the the it's not the action it's the landscape and and in many ways the video that Joan has it serves as the landscape so I wanted to stay kind of within those realms so I've never fully seen the piece even when I watch the video of the piece I'm never really understanding the aspect because then I'm watching it on a screen and that makes a big difference so it's also like playing in a club or playing with a band it's impossible to hear everything that everyone is doing. You can focus on a few things and and then play to those things, but then after that, you also have to just be able to, to make sound and hope that it will all come together in some grand unified vision of for the audience, you know, to experience. And sometimes it comes together, sometimes it doesn't, but that's the risk that we would play with as performers. That issue of the controlled space was really played into your residency at the Whitney Museum. I know that you worked with your wife, uh, mezzo-soprano Alicia Hall-Moran, and you produced this project you called Bleed, all these different live performances that was beyond jazz and opera completely. Right. That must have been a very exciting process for you. Right. I mean, you know, for five days to spend time working in the Whitney, you know, not only with my wife, who we've had a long relationship with, but also with a bunch of other friends. So it really became like a community project. So people like Kara Walker come and join us. Joan Jonas joins us. Columnist from the New York Times, Charles Lowe, joins us. You know, my band joins us. We have Tycho drummers join us. And that, you know, it became a really ongoing exploration of, of what our community is and the various kinds of output that we make, whether we're writers, dancers, singers, or musicians, or artists. And each artist really decided to kind of expand their boundaries in a way, too. John Jonas had never performed with my group, The Bandwagon, but there she was up on stage with us. Or Kara Walker had never done a musical performance before, and there she was up there singing and presenting a new work. And that was kind of how it unfolded. My wife was doing a piece with Tycho Drummers where she was singing a Beyonce song. So, you know, every everything was new. Everything was fresh. And we were presenting it to an audience that was accustomed to, to viewing work, a museum audience, uh, a, a biennial audience. And within the grand scope, it was a wonderful five days. I imagine that the experience gave you ideas for other collaborations. I mean, yes, they have. I mean, most importantly is, is I think, how do I transform just the small work that I do with my group, visually or aesthetically? People have already begun to write us, my wife and I, about whether or not we'll present a similar project in other places. And it's very difficult. Actually, it's impossible to do what we just did in New York because New York is our home. So there, there are other mutations that might happen in other places, but they won't be believed. They'll be something different. And my wife and I, you know, kind of are continuing to sift through the, the options that come our way. Sound artist Stephen Vitiello creates audible spatial experiences with mechanical, musical, architectural, and natural sounds extracted from city sites and distant landscapes. His environments reorient to our senses so that our primary encounter is one of listening. 
One of his installations was originally commissioned in 2010 for a year-long installation on the High Line in New York. What I did was recorded every bell I could think of, and people at Creative Time helped me think of other bells. And then I chose 59 of them. And at the beginning of the hour, all the bells ring together so that Boots the Cat's bell rings at the same time as the synagogue, as the same time as the Hare Krishna Temple bell, as the New York Stock Exchange. They're all ringing together on one even plane. And then after that, one bell rings each minute individually. And there's a aluminum five-foot by four-foot sound map that's engraved that traces what you hear on each minute and also you can kind of follow to where I recorded it. Installed in MoMA's Sculpture Garden, a bell for every minute featured in Soundings, a contemporary score at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Curated by Barbara London, this is MoMA's first ever exhibition dedicated exclusively to sound art. The rest of the exhibition is on the third floor you know, it's not a piece that belongs in a black box. And I make other pieces that, you know, where I want to kind of put you in that kind of immersive space. But this piece, A Bell for Every Minute, it really should it kind of be in harmony in concert with the city. So I asked for the sculpture garden. So there's five speakers out in the sculpture garden and the sound map. For the High Line, Stephen created a public art experience with sounds ranging from a tinkling cat's collar to the clang of the New York Stock Exchange. There's the people who go and they know what they're going for. And then there's other people who just sort of stumble upon it and may be surprised about kind of reorienting their senses so that they're listening rather than looking and sometimes find that they can listen for a much longer time than they might have looked if they were just going to stand in front of a a single work of art. It's interesting, you know, sometimes I get feedback, like somebody emailed me who I didn't know who said that they jogged there every day, and it took them a few days to notice even that they'd notice these bells, and then they stopped and they read the sign and they started to look forward to, as I run by there, you know, each day, what am I going to hear tomorrow? Uh, Then somebody sent me a a novel, um, like a Wall Street thriller in which the, the character goes, uh, and he says, and then he went up onto the High Line to listen to his favorite work of art, A Bell for Every Minute. One of the beauties of going into larger public spaces is that you do open yourself up to a wider audience and sometimes an audience that you can catch by surprise. Um, I got a larger audience for that piece than probably anything I've ever done, and The appreciation is something that surprised me because it came from children, it came from joggers, it came from art people, it came from grandmas, and and it seemed that the bells could speak to them. It didn't have to be my language. It didn't have to be an art language or an academic or a conceptual thing. They could interpret it in any number of ways, and it was meaningful, which is great. What you just heard was Stephen's 1999 recording of Winds after Hurricane Floyd. That year, he was artist-in-residence, 
on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center. That's the piece that ended up being, I guess, representing that that whole residency was, it's called World Trade Center Recordings, Winds After Hurricane Floyd. Um, and it was, was right, it was second strongest hurricane to hit New York in the decade. We couldn't go in the building during the hurricane, but the morning after it peaked, I went in and there was a term that I was told was called weeping in architecture, but the building was still so wet and the winds were still strong enough that it really felt very, you felt the physicality of movement and you also heard it. And in that work, the recording of mine, it, it's often said that the building sounds like an old you know, ship kind of creaking and cracking in the wind. That's a haunting thought, really. It is. And it's, you know, it, it wasn't until I could hear up there that I became a little afraid of heights. It, everything felt very artificial until I got those microphones working. And then once you got the microphones working, you realized you were on the 91st floor and you were way up above, you know, in some cases above the clouds, up above planes and helicopters, definitely above people. And there was a real vulnerability and fragility of being there. I mean, that, I'm not saying that in any way had anything to do with predicting the terrible things that came, but it just, just the physicality of being becomes much more, I think, sensitized when you can hear. You became aware that the building was actually a fragile being. In a exactly, way. exactly. And I was often there, you know, at night. It was I don't know how many thousands of people occupied the World Trade Center. So it's not to say that I was alone, but in many ways I did feel alone because I was in isolated in my studio. Most of the building's lights were off, and that fragility was kind of amplified by that feeling of just being in this weird little black box studio, looking out over the city. You said that you are emotionally attached to sound. What do you mean by that? You know, in film, for example, a lot of the emotional content is often created with sound. You could take a scene and make it happy, scary, sexy, sad by changing the soundtrack. And I found that it's the connection I have to the world is a lot of feeling that I feel comes through listening. The physical impact of sound is very emotional to me. I've found that in installations that I can really play with the psyche of the visitor, at least play to it by the manipulation of sound in space. And that if it's done right, you, you'll end up feeling first and, and thinking second. I think that with visual art, you often look, you kind of intellectually process and then you might be moved or not. With sound, I think it's the opposite. You sort of that feeling hits you physically, the vibrations of sound into your body, and then maybe you process what you're thinking. If you close your eyes, sound does suddenly seem much louder and richer and more finely detailed. Video artist Janet Biggs pulls us toward more exotic and peripheral geographies we join her in the experience of extreme environments that push her own physical limits, places where she views the landscape as an equal character to the people who reside there. I've been following your work from 
girls to horses to sports and drugs and to these extreme territories of the Arctic and volcanoes. We saw each other when you had a mid-career survey. And in that, the full range of your work was stunning. You know, it was an interesting experience for me to be able to see that scope of work, um, production from 15 years all together in one space. So it really did span all those periods you were talking about. Um, my early interest in identity, which used a lot of girls and horse imagery, through uh, an exploration of identity, again, using generally world-class athletes, uh, and then trying to understand a sense of self in terms of medication, which came from, you know, there's a, an undercurrent that runs through all this work. And then at, at some point, the athletes and that focus and that obsession turned into also an obsession with place. It wasn't enough that it was just person. It became place as well. And I thought that they were so intrinsically tied that a sense of self had everything to do with a sense of place. For me, place has to be extreme. It has to be ends of the earth. Um, I'm continuing that, and I try and push myself in new ways in the production of the work, which is kind of my backstory. But in terms of the work itself, um, the landscape and the place has become an equal character to people who exist within that landscape that I'm focusing on. So what took you to Indonesia? And in the case of this volcano, the Ijen volcano, which is in the East Java region of Indonesia, there, there are men in there mining sulfur inside an active volcano. And so it's this weird combination of the most horrific thing I've ever seen, the most exploitive, horrific thing I've ever seen in my life, and yet this you know, just indescribable beauty of the region. In the volcano, you determined to follow a laborer, and I'm wondering how did you find poetry in labor within a toxic environment like that. It's so beautiful there. Inside the caldera is the largest sulfuric acid lake at the base of the caldera, which is this turquoise that is just, you know, luscious, luscious blue. So the sulfur dioxide fumes are billowing off this lake, and they're coming up through the fumaroles and and the walls of the caldera. And laborers go in, and they tap these clay pipes into the, the crevices, the fumaroles, and they catch the fumes, it condenses, and it pours out as liquid sulfur. So when it's pouring out, it's this blood red. And then it solidifies into what we all know as sulfur, which is this, you know, just intense, intense yellow. So you have these colors, you have this environment. And while the fumes are unbelievably toxic, and, you know, it's not rotten egg smell, it is so acrid. When it hits you, all you can do, even in a gas mask, is just get as low as you can and groan until it stops. But even that, even those clouds billowing up, becomes really beautiful in that environment. And then there are these guys that are, you know, independent uh, employees. There is no overarching company. There is nothing. They they weave their own baskets. They go into this volcano. They there's nothing mechanized at all. They use steel rods and they break apart the sulfur. They put it, fit it into the basket. And they carry out more than they weigh. And this whole trip, so you climb up the outside of the volcano, which is about two to three hours, and then into the caldera, which is about another hour, load up your basket and do the exact same thing back down, carrying more than your body weight. And within that, there is also a kind of beauty, which is they've had to develop a very specific gait. You know, there's this um, moment where the only way they can carry more than their body weight is to drop their center of balance down and then they move as smoothly as possible because 
the strap of the basket across her shoulder not only cuts into flesh, but also kind of reshapes the body in, in really severe ways. And so to minimize that, they've developed this gait. And so it looks like beautiful dancers moving in this unbelievably gorgeous space. And then you understand what's actually happening there, or you know, as you understand what's happening there. And so for me, the, I think the biggest moment of poetry, of transcendence, was on, I was there for two weeks, sleeping on the rim of the volcano with a couple of the miners in gas masks in a very small tent with too many of us in it. And even within these horrific conditions, Abi, who is the miner that I ended up focusing on, as he's carrying more than his body weight, would stop and point out something that was so beautiful I needed to recognize it. So he was able to see outside of his situation in ways that I couldn't even imagine. You know, for me, what always happens is I go in first with a kind of documentary eye and record an action, record a place. And then once I'm back in the studio, another part of the poetry for me is I have no intention whatsoever of making documentary films. I am very much an artist first and foremost, and so I have to then figure out how to frame it, how to clarify it in ways that expand it for me and hopefully expand it for my viewer and give them a new kind of access and hopefully allow them to make their own decisions. To create one of her poetic visual metaphors, Janet filmed an atmospheric test achieved by launching weather balloons. So in this case, I juxtaposed the footage that I had shot of Abi within the Gen Volcano with footage of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency's balloon launch. And it's something that's synchronized around the world, so I really liked that kind of global perspective. There are balloon launches that go from both poles at the exact same time, and kind of all over the Earth. They're, they're doing these balloon launches that give them a global weather analysis, you know, a way to analyze the weather in a global perspective. And so I, I used a balloon launch not only as a kind of metaphor for transcendence, you know, because you see this balloon sort of lyrically moving off into space, but also because I think it holds a promise, or a promise that we understand in the West, certainly, of alleviating hardship through science, you know, that it's going to improve our lives. But I think there's so many parts of the world where that doesn't even touch. There is no promise of science. There is what I would consider no hope, and yet the human spirit is unbelievable in those situations and still has hope and still finds some kind of transcendence. It is a sad piece, ultimately, the final piece that I completed, because anytime there's a balloon launch, it goes high enough into the atmosphere, and then you know it expands, expands, expands as it is um, ascending, and, and it has to burst at some point. And so it does burst, and then it, it comes back down. There's hope, there's promise, and often it's failed. So I see your work with the weather balloons and the Arctic and the volcano as being very tied or connected, concerned with the environment. Is that a continuing desire for you to explore and use as a metaphor? I really think of it in terms of the elemental. And so I am constantly looking for places that somehow fit whatever it is that my definition of the elemental is. And often those kinds of places are the places at most risk in our, on our planet. You know, I think that anytime I point my camera, it's political. It's a political act. Just by the fact that I'm focusing attention on a region or an, an action, 
There's certainly an activist side to my personality, but I keep that separate from my art production. I think I have a huge degree of privilege because I'm an artist and a tourist coexisting, uh, and I get to go to amazing parts of the world to produce work and see regions that probably won't be there forever, if not be there in the near future. You know, and I recognize that, and I think there is a power through that, and there is just by presenting images that can cause change, can help cause change. But the political voice is not my strong voice. The poetic voice is is what I really try and seek. Right. I'm thinking about the fact that that documentary element is there, the poetry is there, but one way you keep it separate is relying on the visual language and the audio. Instead of, you're not interviewing these people, how do you feel about where you are or... What is your life like? You're just showing it. That seems to be really important to you. Yeah, I think um, I very much do not define myself as a documentary filmmaker in any way, even though I ride that line very closely sometimes. Why did Janet choose to focus her lens on the Uyghur people living at the far western edge of China? The reason I decided to use that as a home base and what became so compelling for me, why I wanted to do this, was... Once I started researching, I realized that all Uyghur kids have to go to boarding schools where they're only taught Mandarin. So when they go home on the weekends, they lose their language and they can't speak to their parents anymore. It kind of goes on and on. I mean, they, they tore down all the traditional, the Han Chinese came in and tore down all the traditional homes saying that they weren't earthquake safe, even though they've been in existence for 2,000 years or something. There are all these moments that are happening in that place and when you talk to, when I talked to my Uyghur guides, both of them said, we, you know, we won't be here by the next generation. We as a people won't be here. So ultimately what I did, um, because it was risky to be there as a Westerner and any Uyghur person guide that I was around a long time, I put them at risk and we were followed by, um, by security police everywhere. And so at one point we decided it, the easiest thing to do is just go into the desert and uh, it, we would be safest in the desert. And the Taklamakan Desert is this amazing second largest desert in the world. It's an advancing desert rather than a receding one. The first time it was crossed was in 1984, which makes you know it's not like not an easy desert. And so we took a caravan. We had, we had six camels, two camelmen, a translator, myself, and a backup camera person. So there we are in 125 to 130 degree temperatures every day. That was only broken by the sandstorm, you know, which brought the temperature down to 100, but had its own set of problems. But it it gave me a moment to sort of take all the political and again, find this visual and find an an analogy through the visual. And I realized that when I got back to the studio, again, it wasn't the specifics of the Uyghur situation that I needed to focus on. I do have an obligation to get that out because the Chinese press is not getting that out. Uh, um, you know, there's so much censorship. But for me, in ter- as an artist, as a uh, in terms of the production, you know, I needed to look broader and I needed to look at at that overarching question of cultural loss. You know, change and assimilation is inherent, and it happens to all of us um, in different ways and at different times. And sometimes. It can be subtle and it feels, it, it, you don't even realize change is happening and sometimes it's incredibly violent. Uh, so the piece I made became 
just about that rather than about the specific situation. But tell me what you're working on next. First and foremost, where this is, where this piece is kind of rooted is in Chihuahua, Mexico, about a mile under the earth. There's a cavern there called the Nyko Crystal Cavern. There's a, a silver mine above it. And when the miners were drilling down, uh, they got so deep because they were depleting the silver thread that they broke into a chamber and realized it was full of water. It was extremely hot. Um, but they realized there was something extraordinary in there and they couldn't figure out exactly what it was. But the mining company took the time to pump out the water. And what they found was um, it's about the size of a football field and it's it has these selenite crystals that have formed, they are the size of Greek columns. So it's like physically walking into a geode. It's just beautiful, ridiculously beautiful, and also ridiculously dangerous. Um, Because it's sitting on a pool of magma, which is why the crystals formed in that scale, it ranges from like 160 to 180 degrees. It's 99% humidity. There, there was a consortium of scientists, global consortium of scientists, that wrote a contract with the mining company to get in there to do research. And, uh, and, and I love one of the things that they thought was it would be a great place to do the Mars project or Mars program research because some of the, the conditions were similar to Mars. When you go into this cavern, um, they custom make a suit for you that has pockets all over it, and they put ice into all the pockets, so you're wearing an ice suit. And then you have a sealant suit that, that you seal on top of that. You have to breathe through an ice respirator, and you're still only allowed to be in there for 15 minutes tops. You're monitored by a medical team. And even with all that, as soon as you enter the cavern, within minutes, you start losing your cognitive skills. And so essentially, it creates the exact same symptoms as someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's. My grandfather was a collector, and um, two of his collections, stamps and minerals, are, are strong memories for me as a, as a child, you know, watching his pleasure. And then as he hit those moments where he was physically there, but, you know, the grandfather, the person I know, was gone and, and couldn't recognize any family members, he still had this connection to, to his mineral collection where he could, he could spout out the names of, of the scientific names of, of his minerals. He could tell you place, you know, and when and where he got stamps. And so that was his last connection. And so for me to go into a place that has those kind of memories for me, but then will remove memories in the physical now, it's the place I want to start and then let the threads kind of go off from there. Photographer Sarah Hobbs takes us inside a fraught psychological space through constructed interiors. Government officials insist that this is an isolated incident. As a result of the outbreak, your city or entire region may be endangered by a lethal agent. Listen to your battery-powered radio for instructions and information concerning areas... Her stage photographs of domestic spaces represent a range of psychological states. There's an immersive theater quality in the installations she creates for her photographs. Her work has been featured in solo and group exhibitions across the U.S. Sarah, when did you first become interested in staging your photographs? When I was in graduate school, I was very interested in interior spaces and the idea that interior spaces can carry psychological weight. And so I photographed interiors as I would find them. And I sort of 
but that ran out of steam pretty quickly. So I thought, well, what if I added things in and I created a space? And that really is how it started. Uh, I was moving from one house to another and had to, you know, how you always are supposed to paint your room back white if you live in a rental space. I started drawing on the walls and I thought, well, what if I... You use the space itself to to create an idea, and so then that's how it started. I began dealing with concepts and figuring out what materials might uh, illustrate those concepts and how I might arrange them in a space to create a feeling of a psychological space. And I think you create that space for the viewer by the scale in which you print your photographs because the experience of your photographs in a gallery is an immersive experience. It is. They are four by five feet, and I am very much interested in the viewer being implicated as the person in the image. A lot of the images have a chair or something that implies a person, and the viewer is asked to put themselves in the space. I love the photograph that you did with the eggs called uh, Untitled Sensitivity. Yeah. If you visit Sarah's site, you'll see this photograph is a room where the floor is covered with eggs. Well, that was interesting because I went early one morning down to the Georgia Farmer's Market and picked up 300 dozen eggs. And I rarely work with an assistant, but on this occasion, I needed to have someone help me um, because it took quite a while to get those out. And as you can imagine, you have to be very careful with the eggs. And I was hoping to not break many of them. So it was a very slow process. We worked with them very gingerly and it took probably three or four hours to get them all out onto the floor. And then I photographed it pretty quickly because when I photograph it, I take the film, and I actually still am using film, I take the film to the lab as quickly as I can to get it processed because I, I can't, I don't want to break down the installation until I know that I have a good piece of film. So this one I had to do really quickly because I didn't want the eggs to go bad while I was waiting, and I couldn't shoot it the next day. So it was pretty hairy, but I was very happy with the, with the installation. In this photograph, the viewer that's implied is a, a chair. There are two ways that the viewer could be implied. They can be uh, the, the chairs in the center of the eggs. So that implies that there is really no way to get to the implied person without obviously breaking some eggs, um, which represent, you know, emotions and feelings. And so it, the viewer can either be the person sitting in the chair or the person who would like to communicate with the person in the chair. So no matter which one you decide you are, you feel isolated from the other person because there's this, you know, sea of breakable objects or breakable feelings that are between the two people. 
I'm curious why you're so fascinated by our mental health and our obsessive behaviors. I think it's a, it's a great leveler. You know, um, we all have one issue or another. You know, there's, I, there's no one who doesn't have some issue, uh, not on a clinical level, but just an everyday level. That something that makes living your life day to day just a little bit more difficult or makes it more difficult for people to live with you or your outlook on the world is more difficult at, because it's seen through some neurosis or other. And you know, I think it's just a fascinating aspect of human nature. So what neurosis have you explored in your photographs? I have explored um, indecisiveness, not being able to make a decision, and paranoia, the feeling that you are always watched or people are always talking about you, not feeling comfortable because eyes are on you all the time. There are neuroses and then there are um, sort of foibles, like nosiness, which is not exactly a neurosis, but it grows out of a neurosis. You know, the, that feeling of really needing to know what's going on, even though it may not be your business, is maybe a way to try to connect with people. It could be, you know, actually a, a feeling of loneliness and a way to get out of that. And sublimation is um, putting something in your life to replace something or to compensate for the idea for something that's missing in your life that you would that you cannot obtain or you had and lost. So you put something else in your life, and that can be something that becomes an obsession. You represented. Our sublimation with a bonsai? Yes. Bonsai trees are very finicky and they take a lot of care. It's almost on a constant basis that you have to care for these things and and you have to get really close to them and look at them with great detail and use the tools in a certain way and you have to water them a certain way and put them in a certain light. So it's very time-consuming, and I used about 30 of them to exacerbate the idea of using up a lot of one's time to compensate for something else that's missing. How did you select the themes for the three rooms you're staging at the hotel right now? You know, we, whenever we go on a trip, we don't leave our neuroses at home. So I was trying to think of ones that would be exacerbated by being away. What would being away make worse? So germaphobe worked and alarmist seemed to work really well. And the other one is homesick. And well, that's perfect. You have been working on this concept for two years, I understand. And you have left the domestic space for a hotel room. And I wonder how the change in setting, even though you're saying that it's perfect for these three ideas, how did that change in setting affect your creative process? Well, it is, it is quite different because what I'm working with now is 360 degrees. In the photographs, I choose one space that's part of a room. It's a corner or a wall. And I set up, you know, I use one 
piece of material repeated over and over and over. I use, I choose one object, wadded up paper or wine corks. And then I just use as many of them as I can cram into a space. And that's the whole of the experience here. The whole of the experience is walking into it and seeing how this person deals with a space that's not their own as they try to make it their own. So it's been quite different because I have had to use more than one type of material for germaphobe. I've got white gloves. I've got plastic covering things. I've got this mask that you put over your face. And so there are so many different types of objects that I have to think about it in a bigger picture sense to make all of these different elements come together as one, the way that they did in the photographs. Your work is influenced by Gaston Bachelard's Poetics of Space. What poetics are you hoping to evoke with Overpacked, Sarah? It's not exactly a, a beautiful poem. It's not beautiful poetics, just the poetics of our, the difficulties of being away from home and what that means to us given our particular difficulties with life. Steps will ensure that your home will serve as a biological or chemical safe haven. As with biological or chemical fallout, having a disaster kit ready will increase your family's chances of survival. The city of New Orleans is the emotional territory that artist Tamika Norris navigates in her video project. She explores how it feels to come of age and return home. She plays herself in Mika Jean, How She Got Good. Her narrative has a lot in common with The Moviegoer, a novel by Walker Percy. Like Walker Percy, Tamika grew up in North America's deep south and went away to seek her fortune. Like Binks Bowling, the book's protagonist, Mika Jean reveals what it means when New Orleans is the city you come home to. I wanted to make a film installation and somehow document the process of what it means to come back home. The story is about a character who is like turning 30 and having these sort of life, you know, revelations, is just coming out of the Korean War and is moving back home to New Orleans around Mardi Gras. So it's this idea of like, you know, hovering over yourself, over your life, seeing how people see you, seeing others seeing you, and those sort of bizarre relationships that happen when you become very detached from a place and space and then return. Tamika's film debuted during the international exhibition Prospect 3 New Orleans in 2014. When we meet her at the May Gallery, a nonprofit art space in the District of New Orleans known as the Upper Ninth Ward, Tamika is dressed in character. She's wearing bright, specially designed clothes and a hat topped off with a giant bow. Inside the multi-chambered space, there's handmade seating to match. Soft and inviting beanbag chairs, pieced together with the same shiny fabrics. These were sewn by a, a lovely woman named Jarita Johnson, who also designed the hat with my materials. And she's kind of helping me bring more of a visual language to Mika Jean through, through the uh, sewing and through allowing me to have sort of sculptural objects that I can wear 
I mean, I kind of see them as like just three-dimensional versions of, of, of what a lot of my paintings have looked like or look like. Being here in New Orleans, it made me think about accessibility to work and thinking a lot about my students, for example. I teach at Dillard University and I've done lectures at Xavier. These are two historically black colleges. Or my grandmother interacting with a painting and going, well, she's looking at it on a wall, but maybe something more tangible and usable is maybe another way to approach making things. Because visual language is something you have to learn. It's, it's really a privilege, right? It, it's sort of an elite characteristic to be able to have visual language and to break down imagery in that way. And so now that we're sitting here talking, I feel like I wanted to make the work in a very simple way, just accessible. And what's more accessible than just like a chair, a beanbag chair, chair. (laughs) absolutely. We enter a darkened room where a film projection fills one entire wall. At the edge of our view, in an adjacent space, there's a flickering grid of monitors. The feature is an 80-minute film. Wow. Yeah, and so then there are three other channels that are sort of what I'm calling environment, which are interiors and exteriors between London, New York, obviously lots of New Orleans and Mississippi. And these are the four places in the last uh, year that I've been. And there's another channel that is sort of the rehearsal. And it kind of, so once you watch the feature, everything sort of breaks down once you exit that space. So you're seeing the environments and you're seeing the takes. And what does it mean to perform oneself, one take, two takes, three takes? And, it, and, and I believe it plays with the believability or non-believability of what's happening in, in the narrative itself. There were no professional actors in the film. Um, everyone that is in the film, they, most of, they, they play themselves, essentially. My grandparents play my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Let somebody else cry about it. The taxi driver is just a taxi driver, and we just prompted him five minutes before. Like, we call the taxi like you just call a taxi, and we just go, hey, so um, I'm an artist, and we just want to remake the fact that I'm coming home from London right now. Can we shoot this, and will you sign this release? Some people go to the prom. Some people go to the bed. It's a crazy world. <laughs> you see the character in London doing interviews. You see the character have a, a horrible panic attack. You see her go to New York and put on a show, and then you see her come get out of the taxi, and now she's just arriving home. Is this your home? This is my home. It's right up the street. Tamika portrays a range of characters in her performance art, but this time, to play a version of herself, she reached back to her childhood. Tamika Janine is my first and middle name. So Mika Jean is a name that was given to me as a very young child. It's the name that maybe somebody would yell if I needed to get back in the house right now. Thinking back to my childhood, there was a part of me that was always been quite performative. Actually, a couple of years ago on a birthday, my mother made the scrapbook for me. And it was images of me from an infant through, and then throughout my life, up until like maybe the teenage years. And looking at images of me when I was three and four, I would make up costumes and, you know, sing in the brush. And I, I was a ham. I, would, I very much wanted the spotlight. And that went away for a very long time. With this film, I'm hoping to expose some of myself. I mean, I certainly believe it happens, but I thought, before I made this film, that you would see a polished version. I thought the person that I would be introducing 
Mika Jean would be the version who's in the Too Good For You music video. She's having fun. She's wild. She's, you know, not a care in the world. That was who I thought Mika Jean would evolve to be. But I realized that I had to fit a little bit longer in the evolution. After earning art degrees at the University of Southern California and Yale School of Art and presenting her work in the U.S. and abroad, coming home is complicated. It's a big adjustment, not just for other people, but for me. I think the title, ironically, is quite complicated because getting good is so relative. Coming back home, I kind of did revert back mentally to this other space based on being around my family or based on being in a certain neighborhood. And it's really challenging. And I've had to really think about how do I want to be treated when I walk into a room? How do I want to be treated as a woman who's conducting business? How do I want to be treated if I'm not being, if I'm not being treated fairly or respectfully in a room, then I will create a new room. But I think I don't get good, I just get better. The voices we share in today's program reveal the broadening significance of space and place in contemporary art. Illustrating how context can generate content, these conversations animate the powerful creative dimensions of the world around us. To explore all the episodes represented in Art with a Sense of Place, Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the blue Smart Guide button. You can download a PDF of all these conversations. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore more than 200 episodes in our archive. It means a lot to know you're listening. With your support, we've been sharing these conversations since 2011. We invite you to make a one-time donation to Fresh Art International or become a supporting member with a monthly gift. The Knight Foundation will match every dollar. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.